I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories. Listener discretion is advised. Howard Wickens of San Jose, California, came from a prominent family. His grandfather had started a mirror and glass company. For decades, the company was successful. Howard was the manager of the company and the heir apparent when his grandfather decided it was time to step down. In 1966, Howard met Judith Barnett, who was visiting California from Flint, Michigan. Judy was also from a prominent family. Her father was a well-known clothing salesman in Flint. Judy and Howard met through mutual friends and there was an instant connection. They were married in 1968 when they were both 19. They settled in Santa Clara, California. Not long after getting married, Judy gave birth to a son, Daniel. After a series of miscarriages after Daniel was born, they adopted a seven-year-old girl, Marie. Daniel was four at the time. Eight years after Daniel was born, Judy was surprised to discover that she was pregnant again. She gave birth to another son, Nathan. Initially, they were a happy family. Howard and Judy were charismatic and seemed like the all-American couple. They were people you'd love to have as neighbors, but the relationship was rocky. Howard and Judy's daughter, Marie, told the television program Unusual Suspects that they became tired of each other and they didn't feel like they could go on living together. So in 1978, Howard and Judy divorced. By the autumn of 1978, Judy was married again. Her new husband was Robert Singer, who went by the name Bob. Bob was 14 years her senior. They had met at a temple fundraiser in San Jose, California the year before. When they met, Bob was married. Bob ended up divorcing his wife so he could marry Judy. Bob and Judy settled in Grand Blanc, an upper-class neighborhood in Flint, Michigan. Bob purchased a restaurant franchise, the Onion Croc, and a shopping mall in Flint. When Judy moved to Flint, she took her and Howard's three children with them. In March 1980, Howard was living alone in a townhouse in Santa Clara, California. He was supposedly drinking too much, smoking too much marijuana, and abusing cocaine. His friends and family said that he was lonely, but he didn't want his kids to know that. He had visitation rights. He was allowed to visit them on pre-arranged holidays and during school vacations. But he called them nearly daily and wrote a letter to them once a week. On the night of March 21st, 1980, he wrote them a letter. He wrote that he was going on a weekend trip with some friends. He also wrote that he had to sign off because they were waiting for him in the car. But that was just a fib. Instead, he mailed the letter, walked home, changed into a bathrobe, and ordered pizza, which he ate alone. The next day, March 22nd, 1980, Howard didn't show up for a barbecue with friends. One of his friends went to check on him. When he got to his home, he found an odd scene. There appeared to be dried blood on the front walkway. In the door, there were seven holes. 
The friend thought that they looked like bullet holes, so he called the police. In the front hallway of the townhouse, the police found the dead body of 32-year-old Howard Wicken. He was dressed in a bathrobe. The medical examiner thought he had been killed the night before. The police didn't believe that the killer entered the townhouse. Outside, they found 10 shell casings. Seven were in front of the door, and three were in the bushes near the entrance. They were all 22 caliber casings. The police thought that they were most likely fired from a rifle. The police surmised that the killer lured Howard out of the house while they hid in the bushes. Then they fired three bullets at him. Howard made it back into the house and shut the door behind him. The shooter continued to fire into the door, hoping to hit Howard. Out of the ten shots that were fired, Howard was hit nine times. The police were baffled by the shooting. They didn't believe that the motive was robbery because nothing was stolen. The killer hadn't even entered the house. They believed it was a contract killing, but who would want to kill Howard Wicken? The police questioned Judy. She told them that she got along with Howard. There had been some disagreements regarding visitation rights with the kids, but that was it. The police talked to Howard's friends and family, and they confirmed that he and Judy were amicable. Another theory that the police had was that Howard was killed over drugs. In his safe, they found $60,000 worth of cocaine and $7,000 in cash. They talked to one of Howard's good friends. From the friend, the police learned that Howard bought and sold drugs, but it was nothing serious. He only sold small amounts to his friends and they covered the cost of his own drugs. But at the time of his murder, Howard was tired of drugs and he was planning to clean up his act. The police talked to the neighbors. Many people heard the gunshots, but they see him do his fireworks. One neighbor did see two men hanging out in a 1970s faded gold Chevrolet driving around the neighborhood the day before the murder. The man had been driving home when he spotted the car. He thought it was so suspicious that he followed them and wrote down their license plate. The police ran the license plate, but it didn't generate any leads. We'll be back after a quick break. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least, Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. 
And now back to our episode. A week went by and no progress was made on the case. Then the police got an interesting phone call from Flint, Michigan. It was a detective who said he had an informant who wanted to talk about a murder. The man was the manager of the Onion Croc, which was owned by Judy's current husband, Bob Singer. The detectives talked with the informant. He said that Bob had asked him if he knew anyone who could arrange a hit. He also said that one night he went to a seedy nightclub to help Bob look for a hitman. But then he realized that what he was doing was a mistake and he told Bob he didn't want any part of it. Then a week later, a ninth grade dropout who worked at the restaurant, 21 year old Gary Oliver, suddenly left for California. He came back shortly after Howard's murder. When the manager saw him, his wallet was full of hundreds. The manager thought that this was odd because Oliver only made a few dollars an hour at the restaurant. The police learned that Oliver lived with his grandmother in Flint. The police thought that this lead was worth checking out. Then, the detectives got an idea. Because of the lighting, the witness who saw the car with the two men may not have noticed it was an out-of-state license plate, so they ran the license plate number that the man gave them in Michigan. This time, they got a hit. It was registered to a gold Chevrolet that belonged to a 19-year-old man named Andrew Granger. Granger lived in Flint, just a few doors down from Oliver. The police didn't think that this was a coincidence. They arrested Oliver and Granger, and they immediately confessed. They explained that they drove straight from Flint to Santa Clara. They took turns driving and sleeping. Once they got there, they canvassed Howard's neighborhood. Then they parked their car in a mall parking lot. That's when they ran into trouble. They couldn't get the car started again. An 18-year-old part-time mechanic named Tom Masalik happened to be in the parking lot. He offered to look at their car. After examining the car for a few minutes, he said he couldn't fix it for them. Instead, he offered to let the two men crash at his place. That night, after a few beers, Oliver Granger told Masalik that they were in California to kill someone. They offered Masalik $1,000 plus a brand new shotgun they weren't planning on using in the murder to drive them to and from the hit. Masalik agreed to the deal. The next night, he drove the two men and they parked a few blocks from Howard's home. Granger grabbed the 22 caliber rifle and hid in the bushes. Once he shot Howard, he returned to the car, got in, and Masalik drove away. A short time later, Granger and Oliver made their way back to Flint on the bus. But why would Bob Singer want to kill his wife's ex-husband? It turned out that Bob wasn't a good businessman. The restaurant rarely, if ever, turned a profit and he was in debt. He knew that Howard was financially successful and worth over a million dollars. He also knew that Howard's three children were the beneficiary of his estate. Since they were minors, he and Judy would control the money. Three months after the murder, Andrew Granger, Gary Oliver, and Bob Singer were charged with first-degree murder. After they were arrested, they were extradited to California. Tom Masalik was also arrested. He was charged with being an accessory to the murder. 
After Judy's husband was arrested for the murder of her ex-husband, she and her three children moved to the San Jose area. Judy visited Bob every day he was in jail. Bob Singer and Andrew Granger were tried together. Their trial was in June 1981. Judy testified on her husband's behalf. She talked about her ex-husband's drug habits, which suggested he may have been killed in a drug deal gone wrong. The next morning, Judy and her husband's lawyer, William Melcher, talked to the press. He said that two nights earlier, he and Judy were in East San Jose working on the case. It was close to midnight, and they stopped at a phone booth to call to order pizza. Melcher claimed that a man in a white Pontiac Trans Am pulled up to the phone booth. He pulled out a gun and fired six shots at them, but he missed them. Then, the man drove off. One reporter who heard the story, Catherine Ellison, with the Mercury News, thought it was odd. East San Jose was a crime-ridden area. What was Melcher doing there with his client's wife late at night? Also, why would they wait two days before revealing the story to the public? Allison kept her feelings that something was odd to herself and did not write about them. Later that day, Judy testified and she had a shocking story. She said she had learned that Howard had hired a hitman to kill her and Bob, but then it backfired somehow and the hitman murdered Howard. Her husband's lawyer, William Melcher, talked to the press again later that day and he told reporters that he had a surprise witness who would testify to back up the reverse hit theory. Instead, there was an unexpected two-day break in the trial. When the trial resumed, there was no surprise witness. Instead, Bob Singer testified and denied ever being involved in the murder. Andrew Granger also testified. Gary Oliver didn't, though and this was problematic for the prosecution's case. Oliver was the only person that connected Bob and Granger. Bob hired him, and then he hired Granger. In his closing arguments, Melcher tried to bring up the reverse hit theory, and the judge chastised him. He said he had told Melcher not to bring that up before the jury because they were not entitled to hear it. The jury took 11 days to deliberate. They found Andrew Granger guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. But they were deadlocked when it came to Bob Singer, so a mistrial was declared. Reporter Catherine Ellison with the Mercury News got a shock two weeks after the trial. In one of her stories, she paraphrased the district attorney's closing statement incorrectly. The district attorney said that Bob had plotted Howard's murder, but Nelson's story she accidentally wrote that Bob and Judy had planned the murder. The district attorney said they never had any reason to suspect that Judy was involved. Judy filed an $11 million libel lawsuit against Ellison. Meanwhile, the legal proceedings continued. Gary Oliver was given a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to soliciting murder and received a maximum of six years of prison. Tom Asolik also took a plea deal, but it's unclear what sentence he received. Bob Singer's second trial started in January 1982. This time, Gary Oliver testified. The trial lasted three months, then the jury deliberated for four hours. He was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. Eventually, the libel lawsuit against Catherine Ellison was dismissed. 
Four years went by. In 1986, Bob Singer's appeals lawyer discovered handwritten love letters that his trial lawyer, William Melcher, received during his trial. They were from Bob's wife, Judy. It appears that during Bob's trials, his lawyer had been having an affair with Judy. This was a major ethics violation. When the affair happened, Bob was looking at the death penalty. The affair gave Melcher a good reason not to put up a good defense because if Bob were to be convicted, then he'd be out of the picture. Melcher denied that the affair happened. He said that after a vasectomy in 1978, he had become impotent and uninterested in sex. He said it was a scam set up by Bob and Judy to get Bob a new trial. Melcher's wife testified and she said that she and her husband hadn't had sex since the vasectomy. But the appeals lawyer found women who had affairs with Melcher in 1978 and 1979. Also, the lawyer confirmed that Melcher's office received the letters. So in 1990, Bob Singer's conviction was dismissed and he was granted a new trial. Instead of going to trial, he decided to make a deal. He agreed to plead guilty to murder for a sentence of 25 years to life and he would give up the real mastermind, his wife, Judy. He claimed that Judy badgered him into killing Howard. She had threatened to leave him unless he arranged his murder. Judy wanted her former husband dead for two reasons. The first one was money. The second was that Howard had recently filed for full custody of the children. After Bob found out his wife had cheated on him after he had her ex-husband killed, Bob agreed to help the authorities build a case against Judy. He called her on the phone and told her that the police suspected that she had something to do with the murder. Judy didn't say anything incriminating, but the district attorney thought it was strange that she didn't deny being involved in the murder. Around the same time, Judith and Howard's eldest child, Marie, was estranged from her mother. Marie had always believed her mother had something to do with her father's murder. She told her living boyfriend her thoughts about the murder. So they decided to test Judy. The boyfriend called Judy and he said something along the lines of, I know what you did. Once again, Judy did not deny it. Instead, she said, how much money will it take to keep you quiet? After that call, Marie and her boyfriend contacted the police. In August 1991, Judy was arrested. She went to trial three years later in August 1994. It had been 14 years since Howard was murdered. The trial lasted two and a half months. She was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life without parole. Bob Singer served 25 years in prison and was released in 2009. According to Catherine Ellison's book, Mothers and Murders, in 2019, he was living in Sacramento, California, but he was quite ill. His current status is unknown. At the time of this recording, 63-year-old Andrew Granger is serving a sentence at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility near San Diego, California. In November 2018, the governor commuted Judy's life without parole sentence to 27 years to life. She was paroled in October 2020 after serving 25 years of prison. She was 73 years old and she was using a wheelchair. She said she planned on moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her current status is unknown. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, 
please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. We have a great show today, but first, take a second to make sure you've subscribed to our show wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.